Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I have no comments today, and that's probably a good thing because we want to cover a lot of material today. So with me in the studio is my producer, Mr. Dan Arnfield. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. It's good to have you. Also with me in the studio today is one of my best friends in literature, Mr. Grant Turgeon. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Thank you. Glad to have you back. Now, in our last episode, Mr. Turgeon and I gave you the highlights, kind of like a highlight overview of chapters one through three. Now, hopefully you understand that to gain the full benefit of this, you have to read the chapters. <laughs> you know, we're not going to read them out to you. This isn't story hour. This is this is intense discussion hour or half hour. Your podcast hasn't yet become an audio book. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so until then, people need to read the book. <laughs> you need to read the book. So for today's program, we plan to discuss the highlights from chapters um, four, five, and six of my early life. Now it's in these chapters that Mr. Churchill discusses his early years of training to be a soldier. And I think I think they're really really good chapters and uh uh you don't want to miss them they're a little bit longer so it's going to take you some time but uh you're really going to going to benefit from it well the uh, the first chapter is uh is titled sandhurst and essentially what this this chapter is about is he finally got out of the crazy schools he thought <laughs> he never he never had to do latin anymore and so so he he makes that comment on page 43 he says at sandhurst i had a new start i was no longer handicapped by past neglect of latin french or mathematics <laughs> Of course, the French, the French was okay to him. He, he actually learned French, but Latin and math, that he just hated them. No. But he says, now we had to learn fresh things that we all started equal. Tactics, fortifications, topography, or map making, military law, military administration, formed the whole curriculum. In addition, there were drill, gymnastics, and riding. <laughs> so, so you can see where that's, this is what he really wanted. You know, he, he really, I think he really had a military mindset from the very beginning that he just wanted to be a soldier. And those are all a lot more active classes. It's not on paper. He, he describes actually going out and setting up fortifications and doing drills. So it's action now. He, he sees value in active learning and not so much in all the book learning sometimes. Yeah, he calls, well, later we'll get to his, he calls some of the other young people of his age, calls them bookworms. They don't know anything. The ones from the regular universities. <laughs> yeah. He's like, they're undisciplined. They're just nerds. They're nerds. <laughs> they're, they're bookworms. So, so, but there is a lot of discipline that you do learn. I think if you, if you become a soldier, if you're really, you know, that training, there is, I mean, there are rules. And if you didn't obey your dad, you're going to obey the, the guy over you or you get beat. I mean, that's just the way it is. So, so, uh, 
uh, I, I was really happy to, to kind of, <laughs> you know, it, as we're reading through this, I really feel for him. And now I'm really happy for him that he's actually getting a new start, you know. So, so, uh, I, I think it's interesting what he says in there that, that, uh, when, when they were taught, this would be on the next page, I think it's page, uh, 44. I think that first paragraph at the top is kind of a little bit humorous for me. And he goes on to say, We were never taught anything about bombs or hand grenades because of the course these weapons were were known to be long obsolete. They had gone out of use in the 18th century and would be quite useless in modern war. So, so he was kind of happy he didn't have to learn about bombs and all that stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, and he also said on that page, the age of wars between civilized nations had come to an end forever. I think that's a big theme in this section of the book is just his blissful ignorance at this time. He also is talking about how he and all of his fellow soldiers desperately want to get into battle. They feel like they're going to serve all their time in the military and never get to fight. And that's what they desperately want. Yeah. And and so obviously Mr. Churchill foreshadows and says we all certainly got our fill of fighting and he even gives a tribute to all of his friends who ended up Dead. dying in yeah. war not too long after that. Yeah, and he said the second world war took most of them. You know, so but he did live and I think uh in, in many ways we have to understand that God was re- was really protecting him to save you know western civilization from from Hitler in World War 2. So, so, but, but he goes really, he's, he's really excited about, they had the study of divisions and, uh, you know, he, he goes on there. If I could just get down there, he says, here was the study of divisions, army corps, and even whole armies of bases of supplies of lines of communication and railway strategy. This was thrilling. <laughs> I'm sorry. It doesn't sound that thrilling to me. <laughs> he said, it did seem such a pity that it all had to be make believe. And that the age of wars between civilized nations had come to an end forever. If it had only been a hundred years earlier, what splendid times we would have had. Fancy between 1793 with more than 20 years of war against Napoleon in front of one. So he's saying, he goes back in history and says, yeah, if we really had the chance, it'd been great to be back and live with, <laughs> be fighting Napoleon. You know, and of course, uh, we know that Nelson beat the daylights out of him anyway so so the <laughs> it was it was it was one of those uh those things anyway he really thought about this you know quite a bit and um to, to me i think it was really interesting too that that uh, uh when he was at sanders he, he was taught horseback riding but uh he says he bit the tan often and i looked that up and it means he f- kept falling off the horses you, when you bite the tan, you know, it's actually right on the, online. I couldn't believe it. I said, what does it mean, bit the tan? And he said, you fall off a horse. Mm. And uh, uh, But he kept falling off horses. And I guess they really, you know, moved them around quite a bit. And uh, But he goes on then to say, but horses were the greatest pleasure at Sandhurst. So, so uh, you know, there is something about horseback riding. Uh, but I think I've mentioned about my horseback riding experience in Puerto Rico when I couldn't speak Spanish and the horses only knew Spanish and <laughs> they took us to a banana farm and the horse didn't want me on it so it kept rubbing me against these banana tree leaves. <laughs> I held on to the horse though. I didn't fall off but everybody was laughing at me because you don't know Spanish. See, if you learn Spanish, the horse would listen. 
So, so uh, he's really kind of just very open with the, with what he was learning. Eventually, he became a gentleman cadet. He says, "I acquired a new status in my father's eyes." Remember, his father didn't really want him to be in the military. You know, his his father was kind of hoping he'd be more in the political vein of things. And he especially didn't want Winston to be a cavalry officer. He wanted no. him to be on foot as a soldier and not on horseback, right. if anything. Right. So, so, but when he did, uh, he did become a gentleman cadet. So he obviously he didn't fall off horses too bad. But it it does say in there, and I didn't put this in my notes, but he said that he really hurt his tailor muscle. And uh, I had to look that up too. Tailor muscle is, is what you need to be able to stay on a horse. You have to be able to grip with your legs. And I guess he he uh, really hurt that muscle. So he couldn't grip with his, you know, his upper legs and uh, his behind. You have to have your muscles in your behind to do that. So, th- so that's one reason why he kept falling off. <laughs> well, he, And he didn't want to even take a day off to try to let anything heal, right? Because no. he didn't want to be called a pansy. That's right. By the, all the other soldiers. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But, but the thing is interesting, uh, it, it, I, I think... And this part where his father is still so important and his, how he's viewed by his father. And he said, finally, it's like he's finally saying, wow, I, I finally, uh, you know, am something now in my father's eyes, you know, and so, so uh, it, but then it says on page 45, it says, it's where he says, I bit the tan all the time. Um, bottom of page 45, it says that, uh, that's where he acquired the new status with his father's eyes. And then if you go over, if we go over to the next page, um, he he was able to, even though he was now officially in the military, he was still able to travel with his father. And so he, he had the opportunity to travel and and uh, meet people and, you know, be around politicians and, and uh, you know, see his father's, um, you know, what his father's relationship was. Uh, he, he, gave, he was improving on that. But... But unfortunately, it was not long after that that he died, his dad died, and so so that was really a, a big blow to him. And uh, uh, when he said though, when he traveled with his dad, he saw his father in a different light. So, so obviously there were problems between the two of them, and they you know they didn't get along. And uh, I know I had a similar problem with my dad, and uh, we we didn't get along. And uh, but but after he traveled with his father. I think one of the most, it really hit me, I think, uh, a lot because it, it, like I said, I had, didn't have the best relationship with my dad. It, it really, it did really affect me quite a bit. But what he did then when his dad died, he said he began to, when he had traveled with me, he began to see him in a different light. And then he realized his dad had, had, um, retired from being ex, the exchequer, the head of the exchequer. And then he said the one thing he learned is it's never possible for a man to recover his lost position. So he gave up that position, and that was not what, it wasn't the best decision of his life. And it really hurt his politics. And, uh, but then he says when, after his dad died, he got out a bunch of letters that he obviously, his father had written him. And he got, and he read them all, and he realized that that when he reread his father's letters, his father actually helped him more than he realized. It's kind of like he finally woke up and said, you know, my dad really did care for me. And so, you know, it, it, it is one of those things I thought, 
Well, I, when I was writing these notes down this morning, I thought, I never got any letters from my dad, you know. <laughs> so, so now I feel worse. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a good lesson for all of us as well. Like Just the way that Winston Churchill always thought so positively of his parents. Because, I mean, on the whole, you could say both of his parents should have spent a lot more time with him. But he focuses on the fact that, well, my, my father did write me a lot of letters. And when I became a cadet, he did even start to spend more time with me and bring bring me around on his travels. So he focused on the positive a lot. And I think we can all learn from that just not to hold our parents to the level of perfection, just appreciate what they do for us and try to maintain respect as much as possible. And, and just, just, just really try to see the positive side because I think – Winston Churchill was blessed in a big way just for always having this kind of respect for his parents. Even if they could have treated him better and they could have done a lot more for him, he saw the positive and he held the standard high. I think yes. he was blessed for that. I do too. Yeah, and I, th I think his father, when he when he started traveling with him, he t he introduced him to a lot of very, very important people in the government and you know with the royalty and you know he he was really probably given the best open door he could ever get to finally get into politics. And one thing that has impressed me is, even reading this, is how politically minded he was even as a young boy. He really understood, I mean, some of the stuff he talks about Ireland, you know, the, the Fenians and all that. And, and, you know, he said, well, they, look what they did here. Why didn't the government fix this bridge? Why didn't this happen? That's a young age. I mean, I wasn't thinking about politics at a young age. And his mother cared a whole lot about his positions, like what what path his career would take as he got older as well. Maybe she didn't care enough when he was younger, but he did credit her a lot for just caring about his career and trying to give him the right advice. Yes, yes. So I, I think the other thing that's interesting about, about Winston Churchill's life, and, and again, I'd really like to talk to him about some of this, but... but uh, after that traveling with his father, he never saw him again because he died. But then if you look at some of the other character he talks about in this chapter, Sandhurst, uh, he talks about Major Ball. And and if that's a... We're, we're, we can slip over there. It's page uh, 49 and 50. But, but it's interesting. It's, it's almost like there's uh, these other men that came into his life that helped him. You know, Major Ball is one of them. And... Uh, in some ways, I, I know a little bit about my, my one great-grandfather. Um, he was Welsh. And if you look at any ancestry about him, there's some of the some of my dead cousins that I don't even know. They they said some pretty nasty things about about my grandfather because he was Welsh. And, uh, and my great-grandfather, his, his daughter, he was very wealthy in Pennsylvania, had a big estate in Somerset, Pennsylvania, and his daughter fell in love with the uh, Irish horse tender. I mean, he, he watched over the horses, who was my grandfather, by the way. <laughs> and so when she ran off and married my grandfather, he cut her out of his will. He, oh, was, no. he was very wealthy. So, so uh, there's some very, very not nice attachments to his name. <laughs> <laughs> by some of my cousins. So so anyway, I thought of I thought of my great grandfather at this point. He was Welsh. He was, it says there. Uh, this is page forty nine. Says I learned several things at Sandhurst, which showed me how to behave, and how officers of different ranks were expected to treat one another in the life and discipline of a regiment. 
So you see, uh, even years ago, I mean, when I first came into the, to the Worldwide Church, some of the uh, some of the ministers said, "Yeah, it's better to let your kid go into the military because then they learn to obey you." <laughs> mm. You know, you have to obey then. And uh, you know, there were some some of the teenagers were really just really not right, and so go ahead, go. You know, <laughs> you come back and you obey. <laughs> so, so uh, anyway. But uh, he says, my company commander, Major Ball of the Welsh Regiment, was very strict and a peppery martinet. Now, a martinet is someone, is someone you really, you better be obeying. It says, formal, reserved, frigidly courteous, punctilious, impeccable, severe. He was held in the greatest awe. <laughs> it has never been his fortune to go on active service, but we were, we were nonetheless sure he would have had to be killed to be beaten. So this is a tough guy, and he has—he he just has a lot of good things to say about, you know, Major Ball. It's like he could look like he's a real hard guy, and he comes out to this, this whole scene here where uh, he says, "One day I drove a tandem. That's a that's a cart with two horses. There's one in front and one in back, and uh, they're hired." He said to go to Aldershot to see a friend in the mil- a militia battalion, then training there. As I drove down the Marlboro lines. Whom shall I meet but Major Ball himself driving a spanking dog cart home to Sandhurst? As I took my hat off to him, I remembered with a flash of anxiety that I had been too lazy or careless to write my name in the leave book. And the leave book is if you were going to leave campus, you had to write your name down and get approval. And he says, however, I thought, I thought there's still a chance he may not look at it until mess or dinner, and I will write my name down as soon as I get back. So he's going to be a cheater again, you know, like he he did before. So I curtailed my visit to the militia battalion and hastened back to the college as fast as the ponies could trot. It was 6 o'clock when I got in. I ran along the passage to the desk where the leave book lay, and the first thing that caught my eyes was the major's initials O.B., at the foot of the leaves granted for the day, I was too late. He had seen me in Aldershot and had seen that my name was not in the book. Then I looked again, and there to my astonishment, my own name, written in Major's handwriting and duly approved by his initials. So so you can see that you can be a tough guy, but you can be nice too. Yeah. So th- those are the people I think that God would even work to make put in his life, you know, to help him. And, and Winston Churchill seemed like he really did seek out manly mentors as well. Yeah. He yeah. he really looked for men he could admire and copy. Yeah. And that helped him so much. Yes, I thought it was good. Then and he talks about uh, his, uh, one of the colonels there, his name was Ma Jeffries. <laughs> but he said he was a super martinet. So this guy is really hard. But... Uh, uh, this is when they were in the Sudan. I think uh, they were in, in Arabic territory. They probably took them out there, but just to just to be called Ma Jeffries, you know, it's like was he the the mom figure for all the soldiers? You know, that's I, I'd like to know more about that. Um, he goes on then down at the bottom of the page says that in my last term at Sanders, if the reader will permit a digression, my indignation was excited by the purity campaign of Mrs. Ormiston Shant. Now, I think this is the funniest part of the, this whole chapter. I guess that, you know, it's, it's like anywhere else, close to the army base. You know, Saturday nights there was this promenade where they have a bunch of bars and they'd have theaters. And so all the young guys, they had leave. They could go, you know, 
from noon on Saturday to midnight Sunday, and then they had to be back at the college. And of course, there were girls. They would go and they dance, and then maybe they see a show. And uh, but but uh, Mrs. Ormiston, she thought it was absolutely immoral because they were drinking. <laughs> yes, and, and Mr. <laughs> Churchill said that. Well, basically, she is wrong to accuse all of these people spending time together as just being drunken fools because and immoral. Yeah. Oh, she she saw all total immorality. Boys and girls together. Oh man, that's got to be really bad. You know. So <laughs> it's funny because Winston became grievously offended by this and made it his purpose to uh, strike a blow to her purity movement. Yeah. And basically, she wanted to put these like walls that would separate all the bars from the like the public hangout space. From the promenade. Yeah. yeah. Or, and yeah. Uh, you know, he 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 was part of a big group that one time bashed the the little barricades down and then he climbed up on top of the debris and gave his first ever public speech <laughs> saying that that they are waging war against british freedom and they must yeah. be stopped they, it's against the law what they're doing but but it's interesting that the daily telegraph caught on to this and they published a, an article by it prudes on the prowl <laughs> 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 and and uh, uh, he goes on to say, just as just as you know, training soldiers, we were accustomed to visit this promenade in the brief leave allowed to us twice a month, from Saturday noon till Sunday midnight. We were scandalized by Mrs. Chan's charges and insinuations. We had never seen anything to complain of in the behavior of either sex. Indeed, the only point upon which criticism, as it seemed to us, might justly be directed, was the strict an even rough manner in which the enormous uniformed commissaries and immediately removed and even thrust forcibly into the street anyone who had inadvertently overstepped the bounds of true temperance. So maybe some people were a little drunk, but they, they threw got, them out on the street. viciously thrown out. <laughs> yeah. so, so he goes on to say, well, why this was contrary to the best traditions of British freedom. You know, so, so uh, uh, anyway, he, he gets in uh, to this purity campaign against it. But what's really funny, I think, is the Entertainment Protection League. And, and the point is, he's invited to a meeting, and he plans this whole speech that he wants to give. He's written it over and over again about the laws and freedom of Britain. And so he gets to the meeting, and he goes into the meeting. There's only one guy in there. No one else showed up. No one else He's showed just up. there with the president of the club. Yeah. And and uh, so he had been talking this up around the base. And, and the, the Samhurst kids, or I shouldn't say kids, the soldiers, they wanted to fight this because that was their opportunity for, you know, some entertainment and some fun and dancing. And and uh, so so he talked to them about this speech that he was going to give at this first meeting. There was only the one other guy. And, of course, they all wanted updates when he got back. And so he tried to just explain, well, you know, these things are a process. They go step by step. We're still drawing up the bylaws of this club. <laughs> but he didn't quite get to the point that, oh, actually, no important people were there attending this. I didn't even get to give my speech at all. He, yeah, didn't, he, really, did. he didn't really divulge the, the true he, he facts. Didn't, he didn't lie, but he didn't tell the full truth either. Exactly. You know? So, so, but because everybody wanted... You know, you can imagine him. I mean, he was really energetic. You could see that they would want him to be the one to speak. 
you know. So so then what's really funny is that that I think what really goes goes on here is then when they when they do put up when Mrs. Omrist get, does get the the barricade put up, it was just it wasn't very strong. And so so they get there and they get mad and then the the people tear it down. And so then he goes over and stands up on the the pile and gives his speech. <laughs> And everybody liked it. But they still lost the election. And yeah. then they were able to put up even stronger barricades between yeah. the bars and the promenade. So yeah. it it ended up not working out, and, and Winston's effort failed. But he still thought it was worth trying to fight yeah. against the purity campaign. Yeah, yeah he's, he, he goes on in page 55. Now, everybody out there reading, you've got to read these pages. So we're, not, we're giving you just the, the highlights. But at the bottom of page 55, he says... Had I only possessed a newspaper of my own, I would have had my speech reported verbatim on its front page, punctuated by the loud cheers of the committee, heralded by arresting headlines, and soberly sustained by the weight of successive leading articles. <laughs> so, so he said, if I could publish this, that speech would be. Because he still felt that they, they lost, but the freedoms of the people were being hurt. And so... so uh, uh, you could see he's he's pretty much revved up. He's not even totally in his twenties yet, and so so he's he's got uh, he's got some fire there. I think it's also funny when he says uh, at the bottom of that page he says, "Then indeed the Entertainment's Protection League might have made real progress." <laughs> Just the two of them. <laughs> he said it might in those early nineties when so many things were in the making have marshaled a public opinion so vigilant throughout the English-speaking world and pronounced a warning to impress so impressive that the mighty United States themselves might have been saved from prohibition. <laughs> and he talks about, in this page too, he talks about that uh, there's the temples of Venus and Bacchus. That's the way Mrs. Uh, uh, almost doesn't look at everything. So it's like, these are all pagans. They're, they're either worshiping Venus or Bacchus, you know. So, so uh uh, anyway, the, the page over 57 is when he mocks the men from the universities. They're worthless. Very top of the page, he says, there are also a good many boys from the universities about our own age, but of course, mere bookworms, quite undisciplined and irresponsible. <laughs> well, remember when, when Winston Churchill became the prime minister in World War II, he, he really did not like those scholars at the universities who said that it was not their duty to defend king and country so even back then as a young man he was in military school and he saw these university guys he didn't really like them then and then when he's a prime minister he was really proven right by the lack of patriotism in the universities and how they they did not think they had any responsibility to uphold freedom in their country yeah and a lot of them did participate in tearing down everything and, and in some ways, that's just human nature. You know, that's the whole thing. If we don't like it, just tear it down. And you see that even today. I mean, oh, yeah. a lot of these intellectual movements end up just causing so much destruction. They have these ideas that just don't translate well in real life, and it just leads to destruction and chaos. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's funny there. He says, in, in these somewhat unvirginal surroundings, I now made my maiden speech. Mounting on the debris and indeed partially emerging it, I had addressed a tumultuous crowd. No very accurate report of my words has been preserved. 
So he said, Where are all the reporters writing down all of his words? Yeah, he goes on to say, it reminded me of the death of Julius Caesar when the conspirators rushed forth into the street waving the bloody daggers with which they had slain the tyrant. I thought also of taking the taking of the Bastille with details of which I will which were equally familiar. So so he's he's really he's really you know pretty pretty hilarious with this. But it's again I think he learned some things, you know, from it all. Now we're getting close to the end here. But but here's here's one thing I think we ought to say before we get um we'll just have to cover the other two chapters next time, but but here he goes on to say, he says, My course at Sandhurst soon became, came to an end, and instead of creeping in at the bottom almost by charity, I passed out with honors eighth in my batch of 150. I mention this because it shows that I could learn quickly enough the things that mattered. So here he, he graduates with honors. And he didn't like Latin and didn't like math and he didn't do so well. But now he finally he finally got something that he could connect with. So that is all the time we have for today's program. Now on our next program, we will continue discussing chapters four through six. And uh, again, remember, this is a charming book uh, by Churchill. And again, it's my early life, 1874 to 1904. You can buy My Early Life at Amazon.com. You will be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. And then, of course, you could check your local library or your local bookstore. Bookstore, excuse me. Please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. been listening to just the best literature on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg streaming online at kpcg.fm and the trumpet.com